Coming up on this episode of Back in My Play, we have the finale of the Summer of Xbox as Ryan Payton joins me with an outstanding interview from the director of Panzer Dragoon Order. Thank you so much to Ryan for putting all that together. I think you guys will find it incredibly interesting and it just led to an awesome discussion. We also just talk about a bunch of subjects that came up along the way during the summer of Xbox to do a final wrap-up. We talk about the future of Back in My Play, and I just want to give a special shout-out to Joshua Hillier for all of his energy and his enthusiasm and just, just being a great guest and friend along the whole series of Back in My Play. I just want to give him a special shout-out at the start of the show. So without further ado, here's the finale of the summer of Xbox. It might be a little bit late, but like Miyamoto always says, a delayed game is eventually good, but a rush game is forever bad. I think the same goes to podcasts. It's coming up right now on Back in My Play. back in my play my name is kevin larrabee and we you know what it's 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 been said before i'm going to use the quote anyways delayed game is eventually good a bad game is bad forever and the same thing goes for podcasts because we just want to make sure it is great and that is the same thing that i will say for the the summer of xbox as we come towards the finale and i am joined by of course ryan payton from camouflage ryan how are you hey kevin thanks for having me on the show again we, we just barely miss it, Ryan. It wasn't like, you know, it, it was a week late, right? Oh, man. This is not technically the summer of Xbox anymore, unfortunately. Uh, I, I tried desperately to get all this stuff ready uh, it, before yesterday when, this, uh, when we recorded this. Uh, yesterday was the last day of summer, sadly, uh, which also means to everybody in everybody's mind, it means like the end of the summer of Xbox. Well, I think for, for everyone out there, the listeners have been incredibly receptive for, for the whole series. And I think the thing that has stood out the most has been like, wow, like I didn't realize the Xbox had so many great games. I didn't realize mm-hmm. the the Xbox was so influential and like Microsoft, them getting into the game was really huge for, for the competition and also the innovation along the way. So hopefully mm-hmm. that forces some folks out there to you know go out to a, a garage sale, maybe jump on eBay, maybe even go to GameStop.com because they actually have them up there and pick up a pick up a nice eight gig original Xbox <laughs> and a, a Duke and maybe a copy of, you know, some of your favorite unique and exclusive games for, for that big black hardware. Yeah, no. And it's, uh, it, I, that's one of the things I really like about your show, Kevin, is that, uh, there's a lot of other great podcasts out there, like, you know, like Retronauts and they, they go way, they, they go really way back. Um, but one of the th- cool things about your show is that, uh, your, your way back machine usually goes to, you know, like the, the 10, 15, maybe 20 year past, um, which is a little more recent. And it's, it makes me feel old listening to your show because Xbox being something like a, <laughs> the original Xbox being kind of a retro console now. Uh, but I really enjoy that. And, uh, and yeah, and I'm, I'm happy that I could, uh, I'm able to contribute. But it's always like it's 16 years old. And I guess if we look in like the grand scheme of things of, I think it was the, what it was, it was the 40th birthday of the Atari 2600 a week or two mm, ago. Right. So, you know, maybe in the grand scheme of home consoles, it isn't 
as old as some of those things. But I figure when it gets to the point where you have to like really consider how you're going to hook this thing up to current televisions, I think it does become rather retro. And uh, I don't know, it's just it's just fun. It's a, it's a good chance to kind of go back and, and look at this stuff. And also, I, you know, again, just of course, thanks to everyone that has been participating in this series uh, along the way. We had, you know, a, a bunch of great episodes. And uh, if you didn't check out on, on Back of My Play, we'll give you a little bit of a heads up that uh, right now the show is, it's, it's not going to be as regular going forward. If you don't follow me on the internet, there, uh, there was some news that I, I am opening up a, a gym locally. So that's taken up a lot of my time and my, my energy, but you know, Ryan and I were talking about this off air, you know, at, at the end of the day, my, my goal is to still have some time and some resources to still continue to do back in my play because it's just an absolute blast. It's something that I always look forward to, but you know, I have to make sure that this new, uh, you know, this business, this new gym startup is a success, uh, first and foremost. But, uh, I would say, like today, you're going to get episodes still sprinkled in there when I have the chance to do them and when the time is right to put together episodes. So make sure that you stay subscribed to that RSS feed. Just keep it in that podcast app that you got going. You know, episodes will pop up randomly from time to time. And uh, if you want to support the show and, and make it uh, a little bit, you know, more incentive for me to to get a little bit less sleep, you know, spend a little bit more time on the weekends putting together episodes, you can go to patreon.com slash back in my play. Really not a major deal, but uh, you know every little bit helps, and you only get charged if a uh, or you only support the show if an episode gets produced. So you can do that as as well. But so Kevin, before yeah, we yeah. before we move forward, uh, because everybody wants to know this right off, hot off the presses, uh, when is your <laughs> when is your Final Fantasy Five show going to be? <laughs> I, I have a note written down Mark on that McDonald, right now. <laughs> John Ricciardi, maybe Chris Kohler, uh, yeah. who just released his new book, uh, Boss Fight Books, about Final Fantasy V. Yeah, for fourteen ninety five, you can pick it up uh, right now on Boss Fight Books. Um, but that's a really that's a really good question. That is like the point is you know, something like that could happen where you know the 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 stars kind of align and maybe I will have time to you know turn on my PlayStation Vita and play the unfortunately not best version of Final Fantasy V on on my PlayStation Vita because I don't have a Game Boy Advance. But uh, Kevin, let's just be honest here. Uh, <laughs> it, when you have Mark and John and Chris Kohler on the show, it's just going to be like your Zelda two episode where you're just going to sit back there and just pilot right. that, that, that airplane as it just goes at a, at a hundred miles an hour, 300 miles an hour. Uh, and so I don't think you have to do too much prep work. No, those uh, are pretty big personalities to, to, to get on the show. But like, I've already been in contact with Chris about coming on. Like this was months ago when he, oh, I got a, a preview copy of the book to, to go through. And I'm like, Oh yeah, I really got to play through final fantasy. Final Fantasy V, but you know, I think we can make this happen. And it's uh, you know, I will put it in the the court of both John and and Mark because they are the ones that are on God, 13 hours ahead and also have pretty crazy schedules right now. So uh if they can put it together, and this is something if you didn't listen to the TGS 84 play episode that came out this week, or I guess last week by the time that you hear this, uh, you can hear them talk a little bit about that. But yeah, it is kind of like Zelda 2 where you hear like John and Mark and, and John and Mark or John and, and Chris especially because they like literally put together facts and guides for that game back in the day. They just sound yeah. like little kids again, you know, when they talk it's, about that game. Yeah. It's awesome. And that's that's the best uh, it, as far as I'm concerned when I'm listening to these types of 
retro gaming podcast. It just even if I'm not familiar with the game, like I'm not as familiar with Final Fantasy V as uh, as they are, but uh, just hearing their passion makes me excited for it. And I think right. a lot of your listeners probably felt the same way when they're listening to Zelda Two uh, <laughs> episode you had because yeah, their passion just comes through and it's 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 really infectious. It, it absolutely is, and 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 again, this is kind of what, like I mentioned, the the show is is going into a little bit of hibernation, but is definitely not uh, going uh, away. And like this is something I also wanted to, if you don't mind me doing real quick, Ryan, is is just mentioning. Oh, that's your show. <laughs> the the there's been so many people that have helped me along the way that have been gracious enough with their time to to come on the show and to like just li- literally answer an email from someone that they. They didn't know, like at the start, it was, you know, CJ, Greg and Phil over at Player One Podcast. It was, you know, we mentioned John, Mark, and also JJ over at, at 8.4. Like the, just the crazy story of, I think I literally, the way I met Mark was literally, Mark and John was tweeting to Mark 24 hours before the launch of the Wii U in the States and saying like, hey, I'm going to Japan the day after launch. I know it's coming out a couple weeks later in Japan. Do you want me to pick one up for you if I can get it in the morning? And drop it off because I'm like I'll figure out a reason to go you know buy a four and, and say out of those guys. Oh man, that's and, super nice of you. Well, it's just it was it it worked out great, and I literally had to like I had that customs incident where like you usually I never get checked in customs in Japan. Like they usually just like look at my bags real quick and they go through. They open up my bags. They saw the Wii U. The the guy's eyes like lit up a little bit. He kind of knew what was going on. There must be tons of advertising for that mm. thing back then. And now again, that's how I met them and ended up talking like going out to lunch and every time i've been back to japan since it's been you know lunch or podcast with that awesome did mark have to visit there. you in the in some sort of like temporary jail or at the american <laughs> embassy because they, they, they kind of locked you up when they found that no i think i think uh, well i think he just like looked at it and just like gave me this stare and i'm like i'm not obviously not going to <laughs> i didn't fly you know 14 hours to sell a Wii U. I just, yeah, right. it was, I literally brought a Wii U and also I brought a bunch of American peanut butter, like natural peanut butter oh, for, yeah, for yeah. Mark, because he's got a, he's got a peanut butter thing. I think he still does. But, um, you know, it's just, it was, you know, it's, this show has always been about relationships that just like happen through through the internet, whether it be like I was mentioning the player one guys, the A4 guys, it was, you know, Kirk Collada, someone you mentioned Retronauts, but I heard for for years and years on Retronauts, every time we talked about Konami, it was about mm-hmm. having him on. It was, of course, like Mohammed Tahir and then Alex uh over at uh Brave Wave getting to getting to know them and talk to them a bunch. It's you know, John Lineman over at Digital Foundry, who has been on a bunch of episodes recently and continues yeah, to awesome. just Oh my god! Like the 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 work and the effort and the just amazing mm-hmm. job that he does with Digital Foundry Retro is, God, if you're not watching those videos and just like the most recent one on Doom was just like a blast. Like because it was literally like it. We mentioned like just like going back to your childhood, but like seeing him bring up those things, like the considerations of, hey, am I going to get a 32x to play Doom? Like, am, <laughs> am I going to like go into Leechmere, like our local yes. De- like yes, department store? <laughs> yeah, and like. Man, that that Jaguar, it's like two hundred ninety nine dollars. But look, it plays Doom like perfectly, and it's <laughs> it's great. Um, but that you know, it's it's like again, it's it's relationships and just uh, like real quick, it's also uh, you know Peter Brown over at uh, Gamespot that I mentioned in the post. But like we were kind of coursing together, like we were really working on me going out and working at Gamespot. Uh, but the you know things didn't work out, and probably is this. The, for the Kevin, best. is this a world exclusive, or is this the first time you've talked about this? Um, on the air, it might, yeah, on the air, yeah. Um, but I mean, because it was, it, it was like, a, it's, it was just interesting enough to go through that interview process of like 
man, like that's a job that I probably could have done really well. But, you know, in the end, like GameSpot, CBS, uh, they're looking for someone that can kind of like, they're not going to take a risk, I guess. They're not going to take a risk on that might, someone that might have, and this is me saying this, by the way, this is my interpretation of my thoughts. And again, it worked out the best for me with my career, I believe. But, you know, it's really tough to take a chance on someone that lives across country that you're going to have move across country to get like an associate editor job at, uh, at a, at a company that, you know, needs to continue to, to make numbers and stuff like that. But, you know, thanks to, to Peter Brown for support because he lobbied his ass off for me and he really helped me along the way. So it was just a fun, it was a fun little taste of things. And, and well, the, you've got the right perspective on it too, Kevin, uh, is that, you know, as somebody, you know, who's gone through this, this process before and mm-hmm. jobs didn't work out or, you know, interviews don't work out the way they do. And then it leads to other things. Um, you always question what your, what your life would be like if you right. had actually passed that interview or, uh, maybe had not left a job or something like that. But, uh, as long as you, you know, just can stay positive, it sounds like you are and you're following your passion, which it sounds like you're, you're doing. Um, maybe the listeners like me included are a little bit disappointed uh, <laughs> because we just love the work that you're doing. But, uh, at the end of the day, you got to do what you're passionate about. Right. And as long right. as the this, this show continues, we'll get that final fantasy five episode. I think people will forgive you. Totally. I mean, like you can, I'm in my office right now. There's arcade sticks hooked up in like, Good. uh, <laughs> like a the retro pies, like, trust me, it's, it's um, I got the new Metroid. Like, they're, you know, video games are still very much a, a part of my life. It's just like, you know, it's it's trying to make sure that it's it's all about balance. But um, yeah, again, you know, that would have been a really interesting a- experience. But uh, well, I'm really proud of what Peter Brown's doing over there. He's, he's doing a great job trying to kind of lead GameSpot into the the next you know evolution of video game journalism and stuff. So, uh, and then there's you know folks like Mike Micah who also. You no, know, just a flyer. Literally, just tweeted to him, and like he's been on the show six times or something like that uh, ever since I started talking to him. And you know, again, just a guy who really lobbied. You know, where's the where's the shirt everywhere? And again, just real quick, it's like I know I'm being like nostalgic about a podcast, but it's uh, it's also when I sent John and and Mark back in my play T-shirts, and they gave Hip Tanaka one of the <laughs> one of the That's T-shirts. Awesome. And he wore it during one of his DJ sessions, one of his concerts. And like, like, how could you not absolutely like just go, go nuts? And someone's like, Oh my God, he's wearing a back of my play shirt. That's so, so rad. It's got a Game Boy in it. Um, yeah, it's awesome. Man. So yeah, I mean, that's, it's, and I, and I apologize for being a little bit indulgent on, on this stuff, but that's, uh, that's like really what it's, what it's been. It's been relationships with people along the way. And then again, there's, there's Ryan who's on right now and just like, Again, like I, we've, I, th- I can't remember if we talked about this off air or on air, but like you're someone who I followed for for years in the industry, and like just like following, like just the great stuff you're doing way back at, at Kojima Productions, and also you know working on on Halo and, and going and doing camouflage. Just has been really awesome to not only follow that, but also to then be able to get you on on the show and be able to get to know you as a friend. It's been really fantastic. And one of these days I'll be out in Seattle and we'll definitely have to, to meet up and yeah, we'll meet in real life finally. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Which, and uh, yeah, like I said, Kevin, I've been a huge fan of of your work too. And, uh, I think that you bring a a really positive, uh, approach to, to the things you do. And, uh, as for me, I just, you know, I've lived, I talk about this all the time, uh, but I've lived a very charmed life and, uh, and I just, uh, I'm able to, 
uh, you know, make some connections and, uh, and, and be able to join things that I, that I have a passion for. And, uh, not everybody can say that. So, uh, yeah, I just feel, uh, very, very, very blessed to be able to, you know, come in and talk about you know, whatever, whether, whether it's Halo or Xbox <laughs> in Japan or, or Phantom Dust. Uh, and now <laughs> right. for this episode, Panzer Dragoon Orda is just, I mean, what a, what a fun life this is. Yeah. I mean, you got, you got you Suzuki to, to say what's up to the audience of back oh, and right. Clay on the that. show. Yeah, the that was Shenmue, awesome. Yeah. The Shenmue episode. That was awesome. <laughs> oh man. It, again, just, just great. And we're going to do the same thing. We're going to finish strong today as we finish up with the, the summer of summer of Xbox. And, uh, like I said, you know, this is the show, the show is not ending. It's just, you know, be patient with me. I'd rather under promise and, and over deliver. And, uh, you know, maybe who knows, we'll, we'll see in a couple weeks if we can get a final fantasy five episode, put together and uh that will just pop up on your feed and you'll get to hear some fantastic music uh along the way for that but let's do this Big bridge yeah yeah totally uh let's do <laughs> let's do this let's take a, a quick break and then we're gonna be right back with really what is why we're here today and uh ryan has put together an incredible interview so we're gonna be taking a quick break and we're gonna be right back with that so please stick around So this is really what we came here for today. Of course, we talked about a bunch of fantastic games throughout the summer of of Xbox. And one of the big components of this series has also been talking about the importance of Sega and the the Xbox hardware, whether it be in Japan or, or even in the United States, just some great games and some sequels to some of the best games on not only the Sega Dreamcast, but also on the Sega Saturn ended up coming to the original Xbox, Microsoft, you know, helped with some of the funding for development of this stuff and made some kind of dream projects happen. And one of those projects was Panzer Dragoon Orda. And Ryan, you actually, again, talking about how awesome Ryan has been for for the show. And again, you know, audience, please tweet him, give a shout out to, to Ryan for all the great stuff he's done for this. But he also went out to Japan and sat down with the director of Panzer Dragoon Orda. Ryan, what, what happened when you went out there? Oh yeah, so I mean, what a what a fun experience, and uh, yeah, I'm gonna run down run down his uh, his history in, in yeah, just a please. second. But uh, yeah, we just sat down for about 30, 
45 minutes and just kind of talked about uh, his his uh, his experience directing. I think one of the more important Xbox games uh, that came out. Yeah, Panzer Dragon and Orda. Uh, the director, uh, as you know, Kevin. I mean, do you do you want to try and uh, <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> try uh, and at, at yeah, pronouncing his name? Akihiko. Mukiyama. Uh, it's just, pretty, pretty, pretty damn close. I mean, this is tradition of back in my place, <laughs> so you have to at least make it attempt. Yeah, again, uh, like I said, you know, thank God. One of the things about leaving the, you know, the company that I was with before is that I'm no longer, you know, talking with uh, Japanese businessmen anymore. So I don't have to necessarily struggle with with this, like, except for back <laughs> in my place. At least not in a professional manner. I don't have to worry about it. Yeah, so it's Akihiko Mukayama, and uh, he yeah, he's he got his start. Um, in on, on working on a game called Three by Three Eyes, I think was a was a Genesis game. Oh yeah. Um, also, Ma- Ma- uh, Magic Knight Ray Earth. Um, he would eventually go over to um, work on a uh, Sega Saturn title, uh, Sakura Tyson or Sakura Wars, as, <laughs> yes. a, as a game designer. Very much into RPGs, uh, and then he was actually uh, coerced into. Actually, he didn't need much coercion. He told me uh, that he uh, was not really excited about working on the sequel to Sakura Taisen. So he mm-hmm. was, in, he was, uh, he was recruited to go over, uh, to the uh, team Andromeda team, um, which he said he described felt like a different, div- like a whole different company, even though it was still uh, just a division within Sega to work on Panzer Dragon Saga, mm-hmm. which is obviously one of the more revered games in history as a, um, as the lead designer on their battle system. Uh, and then he would go on to work on another RPG, uh, for the Dreamcast and also PC called Hundred Swords. I don't know if you ever played that. No. Um, but uh, and I haven't either. But I, I know there's a lot of fans out there. And I remember reading like Dream official Dreamcast magazine and wishing that uh, <laughs> that that game would come over. And then uh, he eventually uh, after after that would work on Panzer or sorry, uh, Fantasy Star Universe, mm-hmm. which was kind of that quasi sequel to uh, Fantasy Star Online. Uh, and then uh, he was then looped in. Uh, to work as director for the first time uh, on Panzer Dragon Orda, and he was recruited by a gentleman named uh, Takayuki Kawagoe, who was the uh, executive producer on that title mm. at Sega. That's a, that's a pretty good lineage of of game development. Those are some awesome titles. Yeah, no, he's uh, he's been and, and again, like RPG kind of runs through his blood or through his veins, um, which I think, which I think is an interesting. Uh, set up for the struggles that we're going to hear from him. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, I don't want to toot my own horn, uh, but this this interview I thought is is really fascinating. I've, I've been able to talk to a lot of different Japanese folks over the years and interview them for various articles and such. But this one I thought was really eye opening because this is the first time he worked on a shooter, uh, very much of an action title, and just hearing his struggles as a first time director to me was actually in a, in a strange way like really inspiring because I felt like you know I'm not alone in what I'm doing and what I hear other folks are you know going through, and so uh, yeah it's a uh, is that enough of a tee up in terms of what everybody probably wants us to get into the actual interview yeah let's let's hear from him right now cool so uh, the first question I asked him was uh, just please just tell me how you became director of Panzer Dragoon Orda. Upon the release of Panzer Dragoon Saga, the team was dissolved and I was one of the last remaining members uh, thinking about the next projects. That's when Kawagoe-san approached me and said, hey, I'd like to continue with this Panzer Dragoon series and would you be interested in joining it? The other thing he said is that there's some talk about this maybe being a new game for this upcoming uh, hardware called Xbox. 
Now, at the time, the, there was a division within Sega called Smilebit, and there was a lot of discussion within the company about who was going to win this console war. Was it going to be PlayStation or Xbox or GameCube? And uh, specifically about the Xbox versus GameCube debate, Smilebit uh, specifically decided to back the Xbox for a variety of reasons, including the fact that it had a lot of a lot of experience working with PC games and Windows games. And specifically, when it comes to the title Hundred Swords, uh, being for the Dreamcast, which was also Windows CE-based. So with all those reasons in mind, we decided to have the next Panzer Dragoon game release on Xbox. So for me personally, I just really wasn't interested in working on a new Panzer Dragoon follow-up or sequel. I was just so focused on wanting to do something different and new. Uh, specifically, online games was something that I was completely obsessed with, and I was creating lots of ideas. And this is kind of stemming from my background with Hundred Swords and the fact that the Dreamcast had a very strong online focus with its titles. However, Kawagoya-san approached me and brought up this Panzer Dragoon project idea. And at first I was thinking, I don't really want to do this, and I eventually declined. But then they kept coming back and saying, if you don't do this project, this new game is finished. It's, it's not going to survive. And I just really didn't want to have that sense of responsibility. And so I changed my mind, really looking deep into my heart. I was able to feel a little bit better about it because I was able at the beginning to uh, pull about six or seven different team members from previous Panzer Dragoon projects to join me with this one. So at the beginning, all we really had was this concept of doing a Panzer Dragoon game. And from there, we started to develop uh, a lot of different ideas about what kind of game this new title would be. So because we have a background working on RPGs and online games via our Dreamcast projects, we kind of started to get excited about two, two concepts in particular. One was doing a simulation game uh, in the Panzer Dragoon universe that would combine strategy elements and online elements, maybe even have some sort of online battles. And then the second concept being more of a traditional Panzer Dragoon shooter, specifically because we were designing this for Xbox, and we think about Xbox associated with shooters and also being associated with powerful hardware. And we knew this was going to be an intense shooting game, so the Xbox hardware seemed to be a good match for that. So we took these two concepts to Kawagoya-san and pitched it to him, and he came back and said, hey, this is for Xbox, let's go with the shooting game. So as for the simulation game concept, uh, we weren't designing it as such that you would have the camera behind the Dragoon, but in fact it would be more of a top-down view. It would still be a 3D game with polygons. Um, it would be very strategy-focused, contrary to probably what you're thinking, not turn-based, but actually a real-time strategy game. So, I mean, th this is a really interesting, you know, 
set of responses because first you get to get a little bit of a sense of what developers and, and publishers were thinking about that, you know, Xbox versus PS2 debate. I, I, I would have figured, and obviously this didn't necessarily play out for, for Sega, but I figured, you know, for every Japanese developer, PS2 would be the default, but it was very fascinating that they were also considering, well, actually, we would just kind of want to work on the most powerful hardware, something that is capable for, for online gaming as well due to his background. Right. I mean, one of the things I want to know before I die is, and anybody at Microsoft <laughs> who knows this, like, just see me at some party and just flash some like like numbers at me, and I won't tell anybody who told me. But I want to know how much money Microsoft paid Sega to make yeah. this game. Well, it's, I mean, maybe... Oh, it's it's hard to judge the investment, right? Because it was not just like it was a loss leader. The original Xbox was going to be something where they lost a bunch of money on, and obviously they made up a bunch with the the Xbox 360's major success. Um, maybe not so much in Japan, but it made them a legitimate game hardware, uh, you know, and, and a real like really a a legitimate contender in this arms race of of video game hardware and and publishing with the, the association with Sega, because it wasn't just like Smilebit was also brought up. It was cool to hear about Smilebit yeah. because they were also obviously working on Jet Set Radio Future as as well. Again, just, you know, championing the the Xbox hardware. I just uh, love that some of their logic behind it was that, well, it's for Xbox, so we just go, let's go with the shooter concept. Totally. You know? Which I thought was kind of funny, and maybe really, I ended up drilling down into the into this part in the interview, which you're able to hear was about the uh, where he talks about a little bit of the preview of the what the strategy online game would have been, which um, would have been really interesting to see. Yeah, I mean that just sounds like super fascinating. Like it's it's always great when you can have these these franchises that aren't just locked into one specific genre. Like they can kind of grow out of their their initial iteration and just do something different, whether it be, you know, this is a really probably rough example, but, you know, Mega Man also got to do uh, a soccer game, get to do something a little bit wacky, but also, you know, you had like Halo, we'll go back to Halo because we're talking about the Xbox. You know, you get to do things like Halo Wars as well, do a strategy game in that universe. And, you know, if those universes are deep enough, they can really play well with things like that. Right. Absolutely. And I think it's also, yeah, on, on that point, uh, it's, it's important to remember that the, the game, the Panzer Dragoon title before Orta was a, a big, it was a big change for the mm. formula. It was an RPG, right? It was Saga. And so they had already kind of set this precedent that the IP could uh, support different types of genre. And so it is fascinating to me that they went back to the shooter uh, uh, approach for that the first two games of the series had. And it's also fascinating to me that he was given this opportunity to be director of Orta. And if he decided to pass on it, uh, at least as according to this interview and what Kawagoya-san had said is that Panzer Dragoon as a franchise may never live on, uh, which was a, an incredible amount of responsibility right. that uh, Mukayama-san obviously had. It's like he was guilted into it. Yeah, it sounds like it. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Man, uh, that's that's insane. So, so what else did you guys talk about? All right. So, um, yeah, the the next question I was just basically saying, hey, look. Uh, so, as we all know, uh, Panzer Dragoon Order was released on Xbox at, at the end of two thousand two in Japan, um, and then early two thousand three in North America and Europe. And what do you remember about those kind of early days? And so, yeah, this this is what he told me. Uh, at the start of the project, uh, as I mentioned, we had about seven people, and the team size would eventually grow to around 50. 
That being said, at the launch party, I remember counting that there was about 100 people associated with the project. Uh, so those are probably folks that were not full-time on the project, but were helping out in a variety of ways. So there are two specific reasons for the delays. Uh, the first reason being that the graphics just took much longer to create than we originally anticipated. Uh, we were on new hardware, which took us a long time to get to get familiar with, and we also redid a lot of a lot of uh, artwork as well. We tried new graphics techniques, which ended up not working, or they were just too performance unoptimized for us to get it working on on the Xbox. And the other large reason uh, for the delays was just on the game design front. Uh, at the beginning, we had all these plans about giving the player more freedom to fly around or giving the, to give them the ability to chase enemies, and nothing just seemed to work out. As, as all the parts started coming together, we realized that the game was just not very interesting, and we had to take a hard look at the game design, the, the flow of the environments, the, how the art was uh, working with all those different parts, and we just had to have it all come together and just do a large amount of polish and iteration, uh, which again took a lot of time. So when I design a video game, I usually start first with the game mechanics and I kind of close my eyes and imagine how the different gameplay mechanics and would come together and what kind of strategies the players would employ to then kind of create this experience. For this project, when we first put those elements into the game and I started to play it, it just wasn't fun. So uh, at the time, I wasn't really understanding why it wasn't coming together. But as we got closer to the end of the project, things started to make more sense to me. Basically, it's as if we were adding puzzles to this shooter, but we didn't have the right parts to make an interesting puzzle game. For example, when we look at the key elements of Panzer Dragoon, a big part of that experience is art direction and taking in the environment and the presentation and the cinematic camera angles. And we realized that that was such a big part of the game that we were missing. So we redid a lot of the game. We focused on this presentation and the different angles and the routes that the player was taking and really improved those. And that ended up improving the overall quality of the game. Okay, so for example, uh, in our game, we have three levels of transitions uh, for the Dragoons. Uh, there's an example of having a stronger attack, but maybe is weaker, and, and also vice versa. And we thought that if the players just play the game normally, they could just kind of force their way through the game, but if they actually utilize these different transitions or different styles, they could optimize their strategy and get through the game more smoothly. Uh, and that was the kind of strategy that we wanted the player to use. So for example, there might be a transition style that 
would allow players to lock on to all the enemies, but it wouldn't kill all the enemies in one hit. And that's why we would prefer that they would move over to the heavy wing and then take them all out in one hit to save time. But the players ended up feeling like this was like too controlled of a design. It was too rigid. And I thought that the players would, would enjoy learning these different patterns and having the sense of discovery, but they just felt like they were being told what to do via the game design. That the smoothness and the spontaneity of the game design was being lost, and it just didn't fit this style of game. So this is this is a perfect example of why I just can never understand people who freak out on the internet when they say like you know this game is not fun. It was like the game designer's fault because this is a perfect like description of how complicated and again like hats off to anyone that can design games because of how many moving parts how many complications and just like at the end of the day like you could have great graphics you could have you know great combat and stuff like that but it's it's about trying to like find the fun and it's not like he just had a like a fun you know toggle that he could he could move (laughs) back and forth to to make the game fun like it seems like there were a lot of great parts but then you got to figure out like, all right, well, what's going to make someone keep playing this game? What's going to make it fun? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, uh, and as somebody who has gone through that, it's a very scary experience when you, you've been working for, um, at this point, I think he said over a year in development, yeah. uh, and it's just not coming together. And it's a very scary time. You, you, you wonder if you're going to get fired. You wonder if, uh, if the game is ever going to come out, you wonder if it's going to get canceled. Uh, you start worrying about your own reputation and what the team's thinking. So, yeah, he obviously went through that with this with this project for sure. Well, I think it's like you know, for I mean, if if I was again, this is I think it's just an incredibly stressful position to be in because you're not only like trying like you have a team looking up to you, but then it's also like you're doubting yourself. It's like, oh man, did I did I make a, like wrong design decisions? Like, is this like something we need to kind of throw it and, and start all over? Uh, again, but it seems like, all right, they were able to kind of take a step back and then figure out, all right, well, what, what, what did people love Panzer Dragoon for originally? Like, can we bring some of that in? And also like, let's just kind of look at some of the things that we see across different games that would allow people to just get the satisfaction, like trying to figure out the most optimal way to play through a stage or trying to find out the right balance of, of attacks versus certain enemies. Like that is something that will satisfy a gamer. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's interesting that I think if you read between the lines, he he was trying to apply a lot of his RPG tactics, uh, game design uh, approach to this 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 more or less rail shooter, which I think is a cool idea, but it just didn't seem to work. And maybe <laughs> there is a path to make that uh, that actually um, you know a really fun experience. But uh, and I also thought it was fascinating that he ended up falling back on what. He, he would describe as it as the essence of Panzer Dragoon or the art direction or like just the presentation of it. Right. And that actually gets into why I think that I, as a, as a gamer love uh, to play like a Panzer Dragoon more than a, maybe like an Ikaruga or other kind of like hardcore, like bullet hell shooters, because it's less about the skills and it's more about just the presentation of the music and the graphics and the camera angles and the world and the Mobius inspired visuals. Um, and that, it, 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 it obviously it took them some time, but they realized that that is that is core to what that what that experience needs to be. What it seems like, you know, I haven't played every single game out there, but it seems like this was really late in the era of games like that being mm. like triple A games. Where now, like that's something that is more seen in like an indie indie space because 
Like you can't just figure out, like you can't just put out a game there. It's like, yeah, the, the, the game is all about trying to figure out the most optimal way to, to play through a stage, like a hotline Miami or something like that, where like part of the fun is just figuring out the most efficient way to get through mm. that stage where now people are looking for gigantic, like, you know, environments and just like huge stories that you're going to be going through, or this was almost even, you know, more arcadey in a sense. Right. Yeah. Which I think is a, it's something he's going to touch on later on in the interview. Um, and so, and speaking of which, um, as if he's not already kind of diving uh, enough into the challenges they faced, I asked him if there was any other things that he, that came to mind in terms of things that he wanted, he, he had to overcome. Uh, and this is, this is what he told me. Mm-hmm. So you might be surprised to hear that we didn't necessarily just take elements from the original shooter games, Panzer Dragoon 1 and Spy, uh, but instead uh, we kind of redid those ideas uh, that would fit better with the, the concept of Orda. And there was a lot of team members that would go back and play the, the first two games a lot, analyze the good things and the bad things about them, and then we just built from there. Uh, however, um, one of the team members in particular, uh, Masayoshi Kikuchi, uh, who was the director of Jet Set Radio and also worked uh, on the Panzer Dragoon Saga team, had spent just an enormous amount of time analyzing those first two Panzer Dragoon games and really dissected how do they use presentation and camera and just get that kind of chemical combination of having a great feeling game. And so in the middle of the project, we really relied on those learnings and then integrated as many of those learnings as we could into Orda, which ended up really improving the overall quality of the game. So obviously we wanted to add a lot of different action elements to the game. But I remember thinking a lot about how could we add more strategy uh, to the experience, and I really became potentially over-concerned with that. During the development, uh, I finally finally dawned on me how important the, the sense of feeling and the sense of how we present the art is so integral to the Panzer Dragoon experience. So, for example, uh, in the fourth mission, there was this huge battleship. At the beginning, the concept was about making something really big and having it just present in this environment, and wouldn't that be enough for it to be fun? Well, it wasn't very fun. In fact, it was very monotonous and very simple. So we did a lot of things to change it up and allow players to move around the battleship in interesting ways and give them a sense of how just how big this thing was in the world. Uh, in the end, it became good, but it was very boring throughout development, and I was quite embarrassed by that fact. During the production, as we were struggling, we ended up trying to headhunt uh, a gentleman who had worked on previous Panzer Dragoon titles named uh, Kentaro Yoshida. At the time, we asked him to join our project. He was actually busy at another company. 
but we would stalk him and, and just really just try everything we could to convince him to join our project. But what ended up happening was at this other company, his project had gotten canceled or it just wrapped up, and it was ended up being the perfect time to convince him and his staff to come join our, our project. And what uh, Yoshida-san brought to the project was less about the technical art process, but more about the art direction. He had a really great sense for how Panzer Dragoon looked and felt, um, especially when you look at uh, Savai, the second game in the series. So when we brought him on the team, uh, he was just a great team fit and uh, really helped out with the team morale. Uh, he's always smiling and he has a really strong network of, of people that really trust him. So he really brought the essence of the game to the forefront. And even though we had a, a quite a large team, but it still resonated throughout the entire project. So this kind of goes back to, to what we were talking about before uh, a second ago, but it's like, it's not only about just having like really good visuals and having it be technically good, but then at the end, like I mean, you can probably speak to this too, is like, all right, well, how do we figure out how to make this like feel good? So like when someone else picks up the controller, it's like, it's fun. Like you, you, I think it was specifically brought up like a great feeling game. Like how, how do you figure out how to do that as a, as a game developer? <laughs> at least for me. And I think clearly for these guys as well, you just look at other games, right. And, yeah. and try to study what they're doing and why does this feel good? And why does this other thing don't not, not, not feel so good? Uh, and he definitely had a great team around him. For example, uh, he had mentioned this, this gentleman, uh, Masayoshi, uh, Kikuchi, who was, uh, who had, was the director of uh, Jet Set Radio, right. would go on to direct uh, Jet Set Radio Future. Uh, and then he, um, after that, would be a would go on to be a producer for about five or six, actually seven titles uh, with uh, Nagoshi-san for like, mm. like the Yakuza. He did like five Yakuza games in oh, binary wow. domain. Um, and oh, so, yeah. Are, dude, binary domain, that's a game. That one <laughs> future back in my play, I would love to talk about that game for an hour. That's like another one of those kind of cult, cult classics. Awesome but, game. Uh, yeah, so he's got a, a great team that just kind of sat there, uh, almost like a, like a Tarantino type of just studying via VHS yeah. films, right? Just kind of self-study of just like, okay, this is how this worked, this is how this worked, and then just try to emulate that and bring that that uh, that essence back in, into into the game. Uh, I you know, I don't want to I don't want to over exaggerate this or, or beat the head this point over the head too much, but uh, I remember doing that when I had the opportunity to work on Halo. Is that you know, it wasn't this is gonna be the first non bungee core Halo game that yeah. I was working on. And I remember just going back and playing through as the uh, Halos one, two, and three, and then eventually ODST as much as I could and really trying to study what worked and what didn't, right? And also, like, I mean, not to go even farther back, but I remember this guy listening to the one up show way, way, or one up yours way back in the day, but. Like this was something that uh, Hideo Kojima was also like going through and, and you were helping out with talking about like how to make Metal Gear Solid 4 feel a lot more modern with how mm -hmm. it controlled, just like to feel better for, for Western audiences where, you know, they might've thought, you know, MGS 2 or 3, like the controls felt a little bit too, too complicated for them. Right. No, I, I think a pivotal, I'm so thankful that I was there at this pivotal moment it must have been E3 2006, if memory serves, uh, where or 2000, yeah, it must have been, yeah, 2006, uh, we were invited to the Microsoft booth to play Gears of War, 
And Cliff right. was there, and Hideo was there, and we ended up playing the game. And uh, we thought, wow, this game feels great. It looks great. And I think that was a core inspiration. And then when the game eventually came out, uh, myself and a lot of the, the core team members of the Metal Gear Solid 4 team and played a lot of Gears of War, uh, which I think at the time, I think like Metal Gear Purists, even to this day, I think are upset at like the a lot of the changes we made to the to the control scheme, which, you know, even at the time, I, I, I admitted that weren't, they weren't perfect and they maybe weren't even as refined as maybe uh, Gears of War's uh, controls were. But uh, when you play uh, Phantom Pain, when you play Metal Gear Solid Five, I think that that's like the, the next evolution of it. Yeah. And uh, it feels so good that I just can't imagine anybody wanting to go back to the the kind of like old old traditional camera or a control scheme and again so yeah this is not a this is not a um uh, a rare a rare event i guess in terms of how games are made right you get influenced by other games that you're playing no totally and, and you know just to that that is a game if if konami does not want to make you know new games right now i would say please just get like mgs4 out on playstation 4 and xbox one like that'd be a cool game to to re-release and, and get out there because you get a get that George Foreman grill back out to play MGS4 these days. I don't think that's going <laughs> to happen for a ton of people. But um, th- there was also a mention of like, I thought this was like completely off limits. Like, I don't know if this was done like behind the scenes, but, you know, trying to, or maybe I'm just thinking from like the uh, Digging in the Cart series where they were talking about like composers and stuff like that. But like, you know, Japanese companies, like it was like completely uh you know, unacceptable to do any sort of head hunting to try to try to like hire someone away from mm. from another company. Do, do you know if like this was still the case back in? Oh, absolutely. Okay, absolutely. <laughs> they were just kind yeah. of like you know talking, you know, getting some drinks and just talking about it casually and seeing if it could happen. Yeah, no, for sure. And they they're very they're very wary of that. Again, Japan's opening up a little bit more when it comes to this. Um, just recruiting and, and things like that and, and lifetime employment. It's definitely not what it used to be, but uh, yeah, they, they're very sensitive about that. And it also like it was, uh, I mean, this is something that still is, is happening out here in, in, in the States on the, the West coast and Silicon Valley. They're still doing pretty, pretty intense stuff when it comes to, you know, being anti-competitive and, and hiring practices. But uh, it, again, that was something that always stood out for for looking in any kind of like, you know, Japanese business stuff was always like, yeah, it was completely, <laughs> you know, off limits. It is dishonorable. Like they don't even think about, think about doing it. Um, yeah. But again, just like really important stuff, like hitting back on just like the importance of art direction. And I think like if you talk to any fans of, you know, the Panzer Dragoon series and also like just talking about this era of Sega, like mm. this, the Saturn Dreamcast. And, and I guess you would even say like the Xbox era of Sega, like that was, I think the two, maybe the top three things were, you know, how great the games played and there could be a debate about, you know, Jet Set Radio and stuff like that, but how, <laughs> how great the games played how incredible the visuals were in the, how strong the art direction was. And then also, of course, you know, for, for a lot of those games, it was also the, the soundtrack. It was like soundtracks just across the board, incredible soundtracks, which a bunch of them are on iTunes. If you want to get them, they're actually like really, uh, really competitively priced, but like, that that's what it was is it was this overarching experience that you got from these Sega games that was unique to what they could deliver. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Saori uh, Kobayashi, she composed an incredible soundtrack, which has been the soundtrack of my life for the past <laughs> week as we're getting prepared for this, uh, for this, for this uh, recording. So, uh, so Kevin, for the next question that I've got for Mukayama-san, it's a, uh, it's just me asking about um, why was why is the game so hard? It's actually known to be a, a quite quite difficult game, and uh, and this is what he told me. 
So one of the goals for Panzer Dragoon Ordo is that we wanted the as many people as possible to play the game. And during development, however, we received a request from Sega of America to add more content to the game, to kind of stretch out the experience uh, so the player would have a lot of hours of content to play through. Which was tough because it felt like it was a little bit at odds with our desire to create a rich and very visceral shooting game that, by definition, is usually a lot shorter as opposed to the RPG that we had made previously. So we tried to extend the game and try to have as many stages as possible. We actually ended up creating 10 stages, even though a lot of the designers said that that was going to be impossible. Um, we also knew that uh, creating these 10 stages will probably need to include just like the last boss at the end, so we can get to that number of 10. But even though we knew that we still had to make more, more content, we decided to instead rely on this Pandora's box idea, uh, an idea that could be found in previous Panzer Dragoon titles that would just add a lot of ancillary content for players to enjoy after they've completed the initial experience. So one way we expanded on the value of the game was by adding difficulty modes, which was a first for the Panzer Dragoon series. For normal difficulty, we wanted a player to not just be able to cruise the game because, again, we were worried about having too short of, of a title. Uh, for normal difficulty, we tuned it as such that the players would find it quite challenging. However, if they were effectively utilizing the game's specific elements, core elements such as the transitions or by moving slowly in these specific areas or going faster in these specific areas, that they would actually find that the game really wasn't that difficult. So lastly, one of the game design principles that we made sure to really stick to was to require that the player demonstrated that they understood the game's strategy uh, as opposed to relying really on the player's abilities and techniques uh, to play through the game. In an effort to add value to the game uh, for folks that have already finished uh, the game on normal, we added a hard mode and we want to make sure that we had an easy mode to give, make the game more accessible to more players. But we had a really hard time figuring out how to balance uh, easy mode because we were all getting really good at the game. Uh, however, there was, a, there was a woman in localization who I think didn't really play video games at all. And we asked her to play easy mode and we would adjust the game according to how she was playing. And in fact, it almost was as if she was becoming a game designer for the game because her play style was really informing how we were tuning uh, easy mode. Uh, it was almost as if this international coordinator uh, was like a really core part of that experience. Uh, so when she was finally able to finish the game on easy mode, we knew that we had the right degree of balance. And everybody was very excited. Both of the original Panzer Dragoon games were oftentimes chided for having short campaign lengths. So which is why we were developing a lot of different ideas to expand the volume, including having a two-player mode. But we ended up abandoning that idea quite early on in production uh, because of concerns that it would 
diminish the overall quality of the game and that we wouldn't be able to focus on um, other features of the game because we'd be so focused on this two-player co-op uh, experience. And to be frank, we just didn't really think that Panzer Dragoon would make for a great co-op experience uh, because it's so much about the visceral single-player action. Something was hit on. This was like a thing... Remember, like back in the day, you would also you get your review scores. You'd have like you'd have your maybe this is just a game bro thing. It'd be like graphics, sound, you know, gameplay, and <laughs> oh, then yeah. there was fun like factor. fun factor. But like there was also like you know there would be like replay value and just like value because you know a lot of times people might only get you know one game every couple mm-hmm. months. Maybe it was just birthday and Christmas or holidays or whatever, and you wanted the longest game possible. You wanted. Dragon Quest, maybe you don't want Dragon Quest 7. Maybe you wanted like a game <laughs> that was extremely long so you get the mo- you get your money's worth out of it. Right. And this was definitely like one of their considerations throughout development process is like it, it's it's like the Star Fox thing where you know you don't want to produce a 30 minute game because people will return it, they'll trade maybe not trade it in, but they'll feel like they didn't get a a valued experience out of it. So they they were trying a lot of things throughout this process to try to increase the value of the game. Right. And I ultimately think this is probably one of the things that that really hurt the product uh, long term. And I think Sega of America was probably right in terms of being concerned, because uh, at least when you play the game uh, without the the, the, t- the tweaks that I think they obviously did to make the game harder to kind of artificially extend the playtime. If you play the game on easy, which to me actually feels like a normal mode for most games, uh, you could really blow through this game in an afternoon. And again, at 50 or 60 dollars, uh, I'm I'm. Yeah, I'm convinced that Sega knew that this was a this is a major problem. Yeah, it's I mean it's 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 not a problem these days because you can have different levels of of games. You could have a ten dollar game that's up on you know PSN or Xbox mm-hmm. Live or Nintendo eShop and stuff like that, and you can go all the way up to your big budget sixty dollar games. And it's also been like really cool, just like a side thing to like last weekend I. Literally, I haven't done this in forever. I literally like sat down on my couch and played all the way through uh, Uncharted: The Lost Legacy, like in two sittings, like a ten-hour game that you get for forty dollars. So, like even another tier of experience. But back then, it was like you know, it's forty-nine ninety-five. Or in Japan, it was like these games were going up in like you know six, seven thousand yen. Oh, so yeah. you had oh, to deliver sure. on that stuff. Also, you guys hit on difficulty in in games, and this is like again, this is something that we literally still see. I talked about. Earlier in the episode, I, I got the new, uh, well, not new, I guess it's the remake Metroid uh, Samus Return on, on 3DS. And it was like this big deal about hard mode being kind of or this other version of hard mode being locked behind an amiibo. It was like the new Zelda came out uh, earlier this year and like hard mode was something you had to to pay for. But that's something that was been really a tradition in Japanese games where you'd have like the normal mode, but like if you finish the game, there would always be something more to go back to the game, whether it be a uh, hard mode or being some other sort of, of modes that would, you know, change up the game uh, a little bit. But I mean, it, that was something that was included in here, but also I thought it was really fascinating, like getting a, a, a woman in sales who had no video game experience <laughs> really to try to figure out now, how do we make this an, an, an easy mode? But that was such a cool anecdote. Like, no, actually she, then she ended up just getting like really good at games and getting into it. That was awesome. Yeah, it actually reminds me of the Gabe Newell's old chat about how they balanced uh, the first Half-Life. I think he, he he would bring in his father to come in and play. <laughs> and then he his father ended up becoming a really terrible playtester because he started getting good at the game. Uh, and then uh, the, other thing, the last thing I want to mention before we go into the final question was yeah. uh, this whole su- subject of, of co-op mode. Mm. Uh, and, and looking back, I, I talked with 
friends about this quite a bit when we think about the the value add of difficulty modes from the original from the first Halo game, but also what multiplayer, uh, not just whether they had deathmatch, but just co-op uh, yeah. was like a big was a big part of what I think made the first Halo game so successful. And if you go back in the, in the Wayback Machine and add co-op to Panzer Dragoon Order, would it have changed things? I, uh, who knows, right? But mm. uh, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting it's an interesting thought experiment. Yeah, and it's something that was literally such a uh, I, I wouldn't call it a mistake, but there was definitely an admission in the the most recent Halo Five. Like that was a big mistake that they didn't have you know couch co op you know split screen on Halo Five. So it's something they're gonna remedy for Halo Six because like. It's just weird because I think it's, you know, sometimes you get so close to uh, a game or a series or there's so many things that you want to do technically that you forget why people came there in the first place. And these like experiences that folks have, like we're going to read an email uh, at the end as we kind of get towards the end of the episode from a listener, uh, Curtis, that wrote in about Halo that perfectly like uh, is a perfect example of, of what I'm talking about with that. Okay, and for the next question uh, from Mukayama-san, I basically asked him just like, what was it like to be a first-time director, uh, not only on a on any game, but on a on a huge franchise like like Panzer Dragoon. So as a first-time director, I experienced a lot of challenges on Panzer Dragoon Orda. For example, um, I had this vision that I wanted the player to fly through the sky a lot more than maybe in the previous titles, uh, even though we were designing a rail shooter. One of the things I wanted to incorporate was giving the player the ability to navigate around enemies, somewhat similar to how you would do in Panzer Dragoon Saga, and give them different positions and uh, increase this, the level of strategy of the game. This is one example where the programmers of the team were just not really excited about the idea, and they had a lot of concerns because we were making a rail shooter, it was going to be hard to give players that sense of uh, freedom to maneuver around enemies, especially when we consider uh, the route that the players have to fly along. The other idea that I really wanted to incorporate uh, but face a lot of resistance for was giving the Dragoon and the player the ability to uh, bite enemies, uh, maybe if they rammed into them. But again, the engineers were concerned about these ideas and how they were antithetical to the on-rails design of the game uh, because in order to support this, it would require us to narrow the environments quite a bit. So looking back as my time as, as director on the project, uh, I think it's clear that I really faced uh, a lot of challenges when it came to the technical side of the game and also in my ability to properly communicate the vision of the game to the team. That became very apparent when I was able to actually play these prototypes of these new ideas that the engineering team would create for me. And then I really started to understand just how highly technical they were and to understand maybe why the team wasn't as excited about them as maybe I was. And that was really tough for me. But by the end of the project, I think that things really started to come together. And at times, I want to be honest, I wasn't even sure uh, what I was saying about the vision, which resulted in a lot of tension within the team, uh, especially, again, within that kind of engineering uh, group. So in a way, 
This was not that dissimilar to the experience、uh, that I was able to witness on Panzer Dragoon Saga. Because I believe that when you're trying to attempt new things, especially in a game that already has set core elements, and then you try to change those and replace those or remove them, it really disrupts how the team thinks about what the game needs to be. So, for example, on Saga, we were making an RPG and we were moving away from the kind of the core visceral shooting action of the game, which ended up upsetting a lot of folks within the engineering team who thought that without shooting, it is not Panzer Dragoon. But as designers, we knew that a core element of making an RPG is to utilize the kind of camera movement to create a more cinematic experience,、um, which is again in direct conflict with the desire to allow players to have free roaming. Free shooting. So during Saga, the designers and the engineers were at odds at times, which I think was also true of the Orda project. Because we couldn't control the player's camera view at all times, what we ended up needing to do was to negotiate between the design team and the engineering team and just set specific moments within the stage, within the mission, that we could take control of the camera, do something a little more cinematic, and then Relinquish camera control back to the player, which then gave them the freedom to do the kind of traditional Panzer Dragoon shooting that they're accustomed to. So, looking back,、uh, I think the thing that I learned the most was that it just took me a long time to overcome my desire to have a more strategic、uh, approach to the Panzer Dragoon gameplay, and that I was not thinking enough about the feeling or just the sensation of playing a Panzer Dragoon game. I was too busy looking at systems and strategies、uh, for how the player would、uh, overcome specific challenges. And it really wasn't until midway through the project that I started to really come around and understand clearly what Panzer Dragoon is all about. For me, I like to communicate my vision using gameplay mechanics. Probably more than a lot of other game directors, I really rely on game mechanics and thinking about how the player will interact with those elements. But there are times that I'm inspired by visuals.、Uh, for example, on the Order Project,、uh, I got really excited about this idea that players would get a greater sense of flying than maybe in the previous games. And then for me, though, in terms of how I communicate my vision, I really depend on speaking to the team、uh, on a one to one basis.、Uh, I very rarely get in front of the team and communicate my vision. Uh, even though I do wish I had that sort of ability, I really just depend on going around talking to the, only the core key staff members and only speaking to them one on one. So, th- this was really fascinating too, because I guess I really didn't think about it、uh, throughout the earlier parts in the interview, but it seems to be something that came back multiple times, which was like the core elements of, of a series. And I don't think this is like this is also something that I think about when it comes to. Like Japanese games, like even most recently, there was Dragon Quest XI came out, and there's like a certain formula for a Dragon Quest game that fans of that franchise are going to expect every single time. They want that because whether it be it's like it's comfortable, it's something that they know、mm-hmm. they're going to enjoy and that they're going to love. And that seems to be, you know, part of what the conflicts were with Panzer Dragoon Order, where they wanted to make sure that, you know, those core elements from the original games in the series were still in there because. You know, that's what made Panzer Dragoon Panzer Dragoon. Yeah, exactly. And it's,、uh, you feel bad for the guy to a, to a certain degree because he can't escape the legacy of,、right. of what, the, what, the, what the previous, well, at least what the first two games were about, right? Despite the fact that, again, they, 
they did a huge pivot with the third game with Saga being an RPG. But totally. it sounds like that the the staff that he was working with was very adamant about the shooting side of it. And that um, and and that being said, though, it, I think he even admitted that. <laughs> again as a first time director he had a he really struggled with trying to communicate the vision and get people motivated and excited mm. and when you don't when you don't have people drinking that Kool-Aid even if you get them to prototype your your great new ideas which may be really great ideas mm. oftentimes you're not going to get the best prototype possible because in a way and I don't want to I'm not I'm not saying that this is explicitly what happened on this project but oftentimes what you get is a half-assed prototype because the team doesn't even want that feature to get approved right. anyway yeah, they're almost trying to sabotage it, so you you won't yes. even think it's it's good. But it's like, yeah, it's it's kind of a bummer because I, I'm on you know two. There's two sides of this where you know there are lots of games where I always kind of I want to know what I'm getting into. Like again, I just talked about playing on like the new Uncharted game. Yeah, it's like Uncharted Four. Like it's the same kind of formula, mm-hmm. but like I love that formula, and that's kind of like what I want. It's nice when you can do something a little bit you know different uh, and do something that is is new but i mean zelda has been a, a series that has been that's been an issue for that series over the last you know decade or so it kind of felt like ocarina of time over and over and over again the same formula now they kind of changed it up but they seem to really hit it out of the park for for the most part but it's, it's just always a bummer when a developer wants to do something new a designer wants to do something new but it's such a it's such a risky thing because you're like at the end of the day you could potentially alienate the audience that the game's directed at. Yeah, I think that's the challenge of of making a great game, right? It's, especially a sequel is you have to have that you have to you have to basically execute on both. You have to retain the essence of of what people think that they love about mm. the franchise. It might not be what actually is what they love, but they have to kind of double down on the on the on what the actual just the essence of that is, and then also introduce new things. Otherwise, you're going to get complaints that you know you might see for like Gears of War four, for example, where people feel like the the game didn't take a, a big enough step forward. Right, 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 right. right. I know. I and again, I like I fall on the side where like I understand that, but hell, I still had a great eight hours of that with that game, and I got to you know go behind cover blind fire through some stuff <laughs> there are some swing grenades that are on the end of a chain and and, and do what i want to do that's what i kind of i got marcus venus like saying ah oh, come on like that's why that's why i signed up for i know right. um so uh where'd you guys go from there yeah so this is where we get into the the final question it's actually a quick response and then we're going to wrap up the show uh but uh i just asked him like what does he remember about the about the final moments of development and what the release date uh was like so the end of the project was definitely extremely chaotic uh, because our development schedule was delayed. We were really running up against the uh, against the clock, and I was working extremely long hours. Uh, I would oftentimes stay and sleep at the office at night, uh, and as well as as did other team members. Uh, and near the end, I just remember specifically that uh, even though we were supposed to be done with the game, that the lead programmer uh, would continue to work on it. Um, he was definitely something of a perfectionist. And so anytime, for example, that the frame rate would drop as he's playing a final build of the game, he would go back in and fix something and to really smoothen out the experience. And we really were doing that right up until the end of the development. Uh, in terms of my memories of the release date, um, well, I do remember going to the store and uh, seeing that the game was actually on the store shelves, and I thought, oh, there it is, there it is. Uh, but unfortunately, yes, the, the sales were not as high as I think we all really expected them to be, especially in Japan. It was disappointing. And uh, somehow I just had this confidence that, uh, you know, for this Xbox game, that this game was a really good fit for it. Then when I saw the results, I was a little bit shocked. 
Uh, I definitely remember that feeling. And while the reviews of the game out in the West were quite positive, they and they did make me happy, um, yeah, I was just mostly just uh, disappointed by the sales and really wishing that we might have had a hardware bundle uh, in the West. <laughs> So yeah, like this is something that God, there's too many, too many behind the scenes videos that I've seen on, on <laughs> games being developed in Japan of, of you know men and women like sleeping under their desks and like <laughs> yep. working on their games nonstop, like up until release. Like crunch is a real thing, you know. That's uh, and like it's just something that I guess has continued to be part of the industry. Even you know it's a big deal, you know, talking about it here in in the West right now about you know trying to to do better with that. But it seems like that's Something that happened back then in Japan, but it seems to be, you know, still going on for the most part. It's just a part of that game development culture. Yeah, it's something I'm really curious about, and I don't know uh, what the what the current status is because I haven't been I haven't lived in Japan since uh, since uh, 2008. But uh, what I've been told, though, by by friends in the industry, is that it has has it has gotten better mm. at that kind of culture of you know sleeping under your desk and uh, and uh, not going home and. Uh, days without showers is actually because there's been a lot more restrictions uh, imposed by the Japanese government. Uh, and I, I look at, at order, whether it's true or not, I look at it as one of those kind of last, last titles from like the, the golden era of, of Japanese development, um, mm-hmm. before they, they, the big shift towards, uh, well, before becoming, um, really losing that battle, that competitive battle against the West. Right. And this is right around that time that that's happening. Um, and you know, shift to mobile and, uh, you know, the, the, a lot of the big changes happen within Sega, of course. Um, so yeah, this to me is I, I just kind of when I close my eyes, I imagine what Mukayama-san was experiencing it was kind of the last of like this um, one of like the bigger eras of Japanese games. Yeah, this is. I mean, every time this discussion is is brought up, it makes me think of that that game, the game that I can't remember, but we talked about Gears of War <laughs> like a couple minutes ago. But then it was Square Enix, right? That that tried to make like a Gears of War like. Oh man, there's um Kevin Larrabee. If if I ever had enough time, I want to do a whole show on all the Gears of War clones that came out of Japan. Um, but I also like want to uh, kind of take back what I just said, which I don't I don't I don't really mean that like this is the end of Japanese games. It was oh, like totally, obviously like, yeah. Japanese games are doing just fine right now. But this type of this this specific era um, where they had to like before they had to kind of rethink their approach to a lot of things. Like this this did feel like um, a big kind of sea change in terms of uh, uh, right around this time, right around 2003. 2002. Well, and he didn't necessarily hit on 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 this aspect because, you know, to see, seeing the game on shelves and going to the store and picking it up and just kind of like seeing it there, even though the sales weren't as as hoped. Um, and this is something that you can speak to as well. Actually, I'm, I'm kind of more interested in, in your thoughts on this as well. But like when you you got to you know walk into a store and see like camouflage like their your your game Republic on a shelf like in a physical like box form, like what feeling does that give you as, as a, as a developer? It must be just incredible. Yeah. I have to think that out of all the things that he talked about, the thing, this moment, uh, is probably the thing that he and I are most aligned with. And that is the, the sensation of being able to go in the morning, go to the store and see your game on, yeah. on store shelves, but, but have a really interesting cocktail of emotions, which is, wow, I can't believe the game is done. 
and it's actually here on the store shelf and people can buy it. But also the, the disappointment knowing that I don't see a huge line going outside of Best Buy to buy this <laughs> right. game. In fact, um, on launch day of Republic, uh, I went there with some, with some team members and my, my, my parents showed up, uh, and we went to Best Buy and they didn't, didn't, they didn't order any copies of the game. <sighs> and, uh, we were sitting around there waiting and say, Hey, do you guys have some in the back? Like, Oh yeah, we might have some in the back. Nope. They don't have any in the back. So then we went up going to a GameStop and, uh, we got the GameStop special. They had only got one copy and about <laughs> 20 minutes before we got there. The guy, as they are prone to do, opened Jeez. it up. Yeah, um, put slapped a big sticker on it, and uh, we're looking around like, who wants to buy this thing? <laughs> and so one of the guys, our guys, Veggie, ended up buying it, uh, and we took the sticker off and all that kind of stuff. But uh, it was a it was a, a sobering moment because again, you have that relief of like the project's done, but then you know that maybe the game isn't going to be a bestseller. And what does that mean for me? What does that mean for the team? What does that mean for the company? Yeah, it sounds stressful and exciting, and also like I get just like a like you said a cocktail of emotions that uh, is is unique to I guess like the, you know it could be similar for you know putting together a movie and then having it go come out or, or you know an album or something like that. But you know it seems like you know, games specifically, it's just a it's such a long road and it is such like just a, such a team effort along the way that is just uh, it's unique in that way. Yeah, no. And, uh, and obviously the, the team would not go on to, uh, to work on another project together. And, um, this is actually an opportunity for me to uh, plug our own podcast. Please, so, yeah. um, as part of a, um, a 35 page contract that Kevin Larrabee and I have uh, <laughs> both mutually signed, um, the, I have actually a final section of this interview where he talks about his time as a, as the battle designer on Panzer Dragon Saga. Um, the Sega Saturn classic, which we're putting as a, uh, at the end of our own podcast, camouflage radio. Uh, we'd love it if you go check it out. Um, it's camouflage with a J at the end instead of G E. And, uh, we just have a monthly podcast where we talk about game development. And, uh, and I thought because this is more of a Panzer Dragoon Horda, uh, uh, themed episode that I would just kind of cut out that portion about saga and then use that as a, as a shame, as a shameless way to get people to go, uh, to kind of siphon some of your listener base over to ours. Please. Um, yeah. Yeah, I absolutely do. So, and I'll make sure I'll, I won't even, I figure out how to do this with, uh, with the new RSS stuff, but not only will I have the link in the show notes on the site, but if you're listening to this on your podcast, uh, podcast app right now, you can just go into the description and I'll have a link right to the podcast in there as well. Oh, fantastic. Um, and so, yeah, and, and just as a heads up, it's going to be in our, um, our October 1st edition of, of camouflage radio. So, uh, from October 1st, you'll be able to hear that, that clip. And then in, in there, uh, Mukayama-san talks about, uh, the, to me, the really interesting, uh, follow-up to, to working on, on Orda where he was, he was pressed to come up with other game designs about for like a, a kind of a, another Panzer Dragoon follow-up, which never ended up happening. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it, it, and it's just left to our own imaginations in terms of what that might, might have been. Awesome. Well, you can catch that. Uh, and I, like I said, I'll have links for this everywhere and we'll, we'll tweet it out so you guys can, can check it out. Um, but I kind of want to bookend this. I, I mentioned, you know, earlier in the show that I had an email talking about, uh, Halo co-op. So let's, let's drop this in right now before we, you wrap up. This is from Curtis. Uh, again, I, I kind of like last minute sent out a tweet. So like, hey, have you got any like, you know, really cool Xbox stories that you want to help cap off the summer of Xbox? Send them in real quick. And luckily, Curtis was at his computer at his phone on a Saturday morning and uh, checked it and then sent in uh, an email. So Curtis says, uh, great podcast. I'd hear it may become less frequent, but I appreciate your transparency and commitment to the podcast. Now onto my Xbox memory 
Apologies for the length. It's actually really not that long. I was in seventh grade in 2002. My friend Kyle was the first of our group to buy an Xbox and show us all Halo. Needless to say, I begged him constantly to lug the hefty console over to my house so that we could play multiplayer and co-op campaign. We'd waste hours just playing uh, two-player Blood Gulch. I think all of us did. Uh, Kyle and I became good friends over the past year or so because as so often uh, as so often happens when you're young, we had been dating girls who were themselves best friends, Jane and Monica. Hopefully they're not listening to this. Uh, this meant we always hang out together. Uh, frankly, we were scared to be alone with our respective girlfriends. In middle school, you need your buddies around. Unfortunately, things weren't working out between me and my girlfriend, Monica, so I decided to break up with her. I decided to break the news to Kyle when uh, he was over at my house playing Halo on Xbox. He was devastated. Uh, how was he supposed to hang out with Jane alone? That just wouldn't do. Finally, he turned to me in the middle of a co-op campaign level and said in a defeated voice, maybe I should just break up with Jane too. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I replied, you do what you got to do. Uh, without another word, without passing, without pausing Halo, he got up from the couch, got my house phone, called Jane, placed the what? phone between his shoulder and his ear and picked up his Duke uh, to pull his weight. After a few rings, I hear Jane's voice over the phone, and Kyle lets her down easy. I vividly remember Kyle and I playing some of the some of our best Halo as he breaks <laughs> up with his first girlfriend. Just as Jane asked between sobs why he was doing this, we were getting into some uh, major trouble in Halo. <laughs> Kyle quickly replied, it's complicated. I have to go. He hung up, dropped the phone, and saved us from certain death. So my good friend Kyle, a future groomsman at my wedding, broke up with his first girlfriend while he and I were playing one of the best games of all time. Halo means something special to us both. And despite Halo, Jane and Monica are good friends of ours to this day. Kurt from Denver, Colorado. That's just awesome. <laughs> have you have you ever done anything like that, Kevin Larby? Um, I think I had, I feel like I've definitely, okay, this is something I think, uh, you know, men and women can both, if you play games, you can both attest to this stuff. And it might not be games, it might be something else. But I definitely had situations in high school, in college, where I like made up excuses, like I'm not feeling good because like, Halo 2 arrived or like, you know, something came out and be like, oh, yeah, sure, I, yeah, I can't go out tonight. Sorry, I'm not feeling good. I'm staying in and I'm, you know, playing Grand Theft Auto Vice City or something like that. It's just nothing to this extent. I didn't break up with a girlfriend over the phone while, you know, mid stage of a game. But you do, like you said, you, you do what you got to do, man. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, the, the only reason I, you know, and I, I bring it up is because, um, uh, well, um, actually, hold on one one second because I got to get the right right name of this game. Um, <laughs> it's uh, okay, cool. So uh, the bring the reason I bring it up is because uh, my best friend growing up, uh, I think we were we must have been in in junior high at this time as Final Fantasy VII came out, and he and, and we were both into it, but he was really into the game, and mm -hmm. I remember him breaking up with his girlfriend she was actually present in the room as he's as he's playing the game and not putting it down breaks up with her not even looking at her uh like watching the tv uh that was uh, an intense experience and then um 
not as as bad, but still bad was that we had a going away party. We were just graduating seniors from high school, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we decided to have like a party at my place uh, with, with like all our friends growing up, and a, a lot of these uh, a lot of ladies um, who would were going to go off to uh, Washington State University. And so it was like the final farewell party. And for whatever reason, I pulled out like Capcom collection for PlayStation 1 <laughs> that I bought in Japan that had Ghouls and Ghosts, like the NES version. Hell yeah. Oh, God. The, and I remember playing terrible. growing up. Or sorry, Ghosts and Goblins, I think it was. Um, and and we – the guys are just around this TV just getting so upset at this game because it's so hard. But like we ended up like actually beating it. Uh, and it took us – hours and hours and hours but we were just so obsessed we were like gonna do this and then when the credits roll and we realize that you can't actually beat the game unless you beat with like only knives or something like that we 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 look around and the girls have been gone for hours and i get like a phone call that they're at like a local ice cream place and like they're crying like one of them's crying (laughs) (laughs) so we had to like hop into a car and then drive over there like apologize uh but then I, I, I swear to God, like right after that, we went back and started, tried to beat the game again the proper way. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, that kind of reminds me of my, that own personal story as well. I know. I think I think we've all done crazy things because of of video games because it is. It's also like due to just that might be a little bit different, but it's also like just the hype of of getting like for me it was like every time these things came up, it's like. I'm sorry, like this game's coming out on Tuesday. Like I can't do anything Tuesday night. I'm going to be indoors playing this game. I'm sorry. I will make it up to you kind of thing. But, you know, we we, we do what we got to do. And if, uh, you know, if it's true love, then it will work out, I think. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd like to, I hope, I hope that, yeah, the, the guy that wrote you, uh, uh, everything ended up working out okay in his personal life. Because you'd hate to re- like have that be a huge regret, right? I, I would hope not. I hope it wouldn't be a, you know, a time travel, you know, thing that you'd want to go do. But the, uh, you know, thing is with, with this show is we'll, we'll continue to celebrate games for, for years to come. Like I said, you know, keep that RSS feed locked into your favorite app and make sure that you keep taking a look at it. And I will still tweet out when there's a new episode of, I know a lot of people just don't go to the website. They they don't follow on, on Twitter and stuff like that. So, you know, that's why I would say just keep that RSS feed uh, going. And who knows what what will come of uh, back of my play going forward. But I just know it's just going to be. I'll find a way to get back out to Japan. I'll find a you know a way to to get you know folks on the show to talk about old games because it's just too much fun to not do it. So, uh, thank you for your patience as we continue to uh, you know do our best to schedule these episodes and, and, and get them done. But yeah, it's been, it's been a hell of an episode. Uh, Ryan, thank you so much for, for first off, you know, putting together this awesome interview for, for the audience and for the show. I know it's, it was a blast to listen to myself. I can, you know, only expect that the audience is going to love it, uh, as well. And I think we'll, we'll have plenty of reasons to reconnect, in the, in the future to talk about stuff, but, uh, Absolutely. yeah, thank you for, for, for all your support over, over the years and for putting together these, these great episodes for the, the summer of, of Xbox. I know talking about Xbox in Japan was a huge fan favorite for the audience out there. So, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely be in touch. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah. No. And, uh, best of luck on the, on the new gym, uh, Kevin, all you're doing. And, uh, you know, I, I, I like to think I could speak for the rest of your audience that we're, we're, we support you and we appreciate what you do. And uh, looking forward to hearing uh, more episodes, even if they come at us at a, at a slower clip. Well, here is Final Fantasy V's already booted up on my PlayStation <laughs> Vita and, and ready to go. So 
Hopefully I can right, deal confirmed. with those low times. I'm not saying it's confirmed. Nothing's confirmed. Nothing's confirmed, but world exclusive. There's no exclusives. Nothing's confirmed. Uh, it, you know, permanently delayed. But Mark, we will, John, Chris Kohler, get ready. Uh, this thing is happening. Uh, it's just it's too much enthusiasm, too much too, too much personality. <laughs> but we'll, 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 uh, we will make it happen. Uh, all right. Well, that's where we'll pause for today. But here's a super long episode for everyone out there to to listen to, and you know. Even the holidays are coming up. That means we're going to get Mike Micah back in the show because it's always a blast to talk to him around the holidays and and go back through some awesome things that he's working on. But uh, again, you know, thank you to everyone out there for for your patience, for your support on patreon.com slash back of my play. And uh, until next time, video games are great. There's just so many great games out there to be playing right now. I would recommend picking up the latest uh, Yakuza remake and then going into the arcades and playing some fantastic games in in those arcades so uh that will do it for for this episode thank you so much we will see you next time take care